welcome to another episode of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Tuttle, and I'm joined alongside Chris Cartman. We had our summer hiatus, Chris, but we're back, and things have been a little bit more busy. So uh, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing really well, Ethan, and I hope you are also. Uh, we wanted to record a podcast last week, but I felt like things were outdated on, a, on an everyday basis, and I wanted to kind of allow the Big 12 stuff to settle before we recorded something that felt like everybody would have already known and maybe been, you know, not even entirely accurate relative to where we, where we were at that point. So, um, but yeah, excited to do this with you and hope you're also doing well. Very glad that you're back uh, from spending your summer in Iowa. Oh yeah. Glad to be back here in the beautiful state of Arizona, having a lot of fun out at these uh, fall camp practices. So let's go ahead and jump right in. You talked a little bit about it. ASU with that huge news, they joined the Big 12 uh, this past Friday. So your thoughts on that and as well, you know, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, the four corner schools joining. So go ahead and give me your breakdown on that and uh, where where you kind of uh, expect to see that go. Yeah. Um, so Michael Crow, ASU's president, has always been like the most ardent supporter of the, the Pac-12, um, or at least as much as anyone else. And uh, there hadn't been a lot of things to really talk about as it related to ASU's position prior to the beginning of last week. Um, even though Colorado the week prior had decided to move to the conf- to the Big 12 conference, um, and there had been a lot of uh, reporting out there that Arizona was also interested in, in making the move, really until a- ASU and the other Pac-12 schools had the meeting, the first meeting last week with George Klyakov and the uh, – Pac-12 about the meteorites offer that was made by Apple TV. Um, that's really the the impetus that started things moving. My understanding is that the numbers were were clearly inferior to the Big 12 from a financial standpoint. Big 12 distributing um, just shy of 32 million per school projected on this uh, new, new deal. The Apple TV thing was was going to be somewhere in the mid twenties, was my understanding. But then there was there was apparently going to be uh, production costs that were going to have to be um, incurred by the the individual teams to uh, as part of this, which had the ability to sort of uh, uh, staff some a lot of that revenue also. Uh, and Ray Anderson, ASU's uh, athletic director, and other people around Michael Crow. I think had been sort of um, alerting Crow and others that this wasn't going to be, the numbers weren't going to be good. Klyovkov had been kicking the can down the road, you know, promising that, oh, the numbers are, you know, they're going to come in. They're going to be very good. Uh, It's getting better the longer that we wait. You know, he said at Pac-12 Media Day, all that stuff really, I don't think was um, that accurate. Uh, Colorado's departure certainly didn't help. and then, so basically what happened was there was, there was um, the multiple Arizona Board of Regents meetings. Uh, Arizona very clearly wanted to move to the Big 12. Um, and the Board of Regents, my understanding is, they, they wanted to make sure that the school stayed together. And the preference was for them to move to the Big 12 based upon the developments on the ground. But Michael Crow very much was still uh, uh, wanting to see what was going to happen. Arizona on Thursday night had been, after the ABOR meeting, uh, had been approved for uh, Big 12 membership uh, in a vote. 
is kind of what was publicly reported. I never independently confirmed that, but very widely, including by our Arizona 24-7 site. And then on Saturday, Michael Crow said, I mean, pardon me, on Friday morning, 7 a.m., Michael Crow said that um, the, they had another meeting, a virtual meeting, and two of the uh, Pac-12 teams did not show up for it. Presumably that's Oregon and Washington because they had, uh, they were Big Ten bound, essentially. Uh, they, Big Ten during this whole process also had opened conversation to, to expansion and found that it was the right opportunity to uh, take on Oregon and Washington. Uh, at that point, Pro said on that Friday morning when he realized that um, it was no longer going to be not just 10 schools, but it wasn't going to be nine, it wasn't going to be eight, it wasn't going to be seven. And it just kept dwindling. And then he said that he met with uh, the Big 12 commissioner and a couple of the school's presidents on Friday at 10.30 a.m. And that was the, the meeting that uh, ultimately led to ASU um, deciding to move to the Big 12 and gaining admission. So there, there's there's some discrepancies out there in terms of what Crow has said, what what Crow and 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 Arizona's President Robbins have said uh, relative to the timeline, um, and maybe we'll you know we'll probably talk about that a little bit later on. Yeah, I mean we can kind of get a bit of a surprise um, factor on this and everything. I mean, they 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 left for the Big Twelve, and, and there was you just mentioned a lot of the factors that kind of helped accumulate up to this and everything and everything that uh, made this happen. But was it surprising to you at all? um to see this move be made not at all not the least bit surprising you have to really look at what's happened over the last 15 or more years um the, everybody knew that larry scott came in as the commissioner in the late aughts whatever that was 2008 2009 and michael crow had been president of asu for about five years at that point he was one of the biggest supporters of um Larry Scott, and even one of the reasons that he ended up being the commissioner, they made that fateful decision at the time to uh, retain the ownership of all of their uh, media and start the Pac-12 network and also decided not to give the reduced carriage fees to, to the DirecTV because they were concerned uh, that um, that would undercut their negotiations with other uh, satellite and TV providers. But what ended up happening was... Um, Fans were enormously frustrated because that was the number one uh, uh, TV provider that people had was DirecTV at the time. And that ended up hurting the, um, the uh, what was already sort of a little bit of an issue, which is the amount of fan support that there is in the, the Pac-12. The people realize Cal and Stanford, they don't really have the most passionate fan bases and even other schools as well relative to what exists in the SEC, the Big Ten, the Big 12. But then when all of a sudden, a lot of these people aren't able to see the games or they have to pay extra money for the, to get to access it in another way, that caused a lot of problems. The, but Michael Crow and Larry Scott, they sort of continued to tout this idea that uh, the, the business decision would end up being the right one in the long term and Crow told the, told the Arizona Public, Republic in 2019 that other conferences would wonder how a, uh, the Pac-12 got ahead of them uh, in the next round of media rights negotiations. But the reality was that the whole conference was falling apart 
USC and UCLA realized that they were going to be able to make a lot of more money by going to the Big Ten. That took away 35 to 40% of the, the Pac-12's value in the next meteorites negotiations. And things have really just deteriorated from there very slowly over a long period of time. And really, when you think about it, Ethan, it the, the things that created this primarily were the um, – a combination of not enough of an appetite for uh, the, the, the way that college athletics has evolved and, and the big business that it is and the, the money that goes into it on coaching salaries and uh, facilities and, and support staffing and everything for football. And um, then also this, cultural perspective that exists in the West of wanting like Michael Crow wanted to compete with Stanford in the director's cup and they wanted to expand sports and they got 26 sports. And you look at uh, Oklahoma state and some of these big 12 schools, they have 16 sports and they have similar revenue overall. So the reality is that the PAC 12 schools, including ASU, they kind of took their eye off the ball in understanding how important football was to the bottom line of their operation. And this was something that I was saying for years and years and years was the wrong strategy. You, you, uh, I understand that they wanted to have a huge student enrollment. They wanted to have a student athlete population that matches that, but, but you have to be able to make sure that you're competitive in football and that people care enough and that that sort of emotional attachment and investment at, at a larger scale allows you to monetize your product and they did not do that and those are the main reasons that we are here today asu president michael crow and athletic director ray anderson spoke with media this this weekend this past weekend so i want to get your thoughts on what they had to say and um kind of just the aftermath of of that uh media presser well uh crow maintained that he was very much wanting to stick with the, the Pac-12 schools, um, but that it became an untenable position due to the Oregon and Washington decisions. Um, and I personally think that that was a political framing, very much of a PR sort of framing of the situation. Um, nobody wants to look like they're the, they're the reason why it folded or that you know, it, it couldn't have been successful had they all stuck together and signed a grant of rights uh, to stay in the conference and move forward with the Apple TV deal. Um, you know, the, the comments by Ray Anderson about not going to Morgantown, I think that's sort of not a very, not the best joke for the, the time and the situation. Crow made, a, made comments about joining the Ivy League, which I think like reflects his uh the, the how much the academics and the way the reputational reputational importance of, of asu academically is to him that the shadow that that casts over everything else is just so it's just everything else is just like you know not even in the same uh, category to him and so um those things were interesting i thought that the the um you know the, they, at least, to their credit, they, they did acknowledge that it became pretty clear that they had to make the move and that they were ready to embrace it and, and excited about it. And they thought that it was going to be better for them 
as a result of the way the, where that puts them with their sports and everything. So it, it wasn't, you know, I thought it was a very, um, there, were, there were good moments and not so good moments that came out of that, but also some of the things that were said about why things ended up the way that they did, I think were very overly generous uh, to themselves. One of the interesting things I got out of that 15 minutes or so of, of being able to listen to, to Michael Crow and Ray Anderson was when Ray Anderson was talking about, you know, we're not in this business of adding sports to cut sports because somebody asked a question along the lines of, you know, are you going to have to cut sports to adhere to Pac-12 policy or Big 12 policy, excuse me. So um, I want to get your thoughts maybe on what this move to the Big 12 means for ASU athletes and not just football players, but uh, other programs here at the school as well, and maybe get into NIL a little bit as well. Yeah, uh, that was actually my question. Um, it wasn't really so much about adhering to a policy. The, the challenge that ASU has is all your sports lose money with the exception of football and men's basketball. And maybe you can break even or whatever a little bit, maybe make a little bit of money in, in baseball or hockey if things are going well. But all those other sports, the 10 more sports that ASU has than Oklahoma State, that's millions of dollars a year in your budget that you're losing, right? And so the reality, the, the, the intention of my question, okay, was how do you make that work when they generate the same roughly amount of revenue as you, but they don't have the administrators, the support staffing, the training, the, uh, the travel, the, uh, the uh, academic support, and everything else that goes in to servicing those additional 10 supports, right? That costs a lot of money that comes out of your operation. And what has happened is the schools that have been, the, in my opinion, that are in a similar tier as ASU in terms of their revenue, they have been more successful than ASU because they have focus more of their resources towards football, knowing that that's how you get a return on investment that then allows you to service other sports, right? So I, Clemson is a great example that I've used for a long time. Clemson, much fewer sports. They allocated a much higher percentage of their resources to facilities, uh, Dabo Sweeney and his staff's contracts, having a phalanx of people support staffing and people behind the scenes that all work toward making their football program the best that it can be analysts and, you know, um, uh, people that work in the in, in media production internally and, and all these things. And um, my question was really about how you make that work now that you're going into a conference where a lot of the teams have that sort of ideology. Is this not the big 12? not Stanford and school and schools that have water polo and women's lacrosse and all, all these things, you know, triathlon, et cetera. And like, so when ASU expanded hockey, they had to take on women's lacrosse. Okay. They travel 20 something, 30 people to all these games and they don't, they don't, where do they make money? They don't. Right. So if you could say, oh yeah, hockey breaks even, or maybe it makes a little money, but you have Title IX considerations and they expanded sports that lose a lot of money in order to be able to have hockey, okay? 
And this isn't not a knock against hockey because ASU has a chance to be a good hockey program. And, and certainly in the West, one of the best hockey programs. They, going into a you know, new conference, that's a, a big de- development for them. They have this great new arena, all this stuff, right? But ASU didn't do anything to Desert Financial Arena prior to opening a $110 million hockey arena. And now they're going into the Big 12, which is a juggernaut of basketball uh, conference, right? And they all have way more resources financially that are going in. Not only that, Warren Washington just transferred from ASU to, to Texas Tech. And the big reason that he did was because NIL, which he's going to make a lot more money at Texas Tech. And I have some reporting that's going to be coming out that sort of illustrates how much more money that top recruits in the Big 12 and other conferences make relative to the Pac-12. And so now that's a new reality that that ASU and its fans are going to be walking into. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking earlier today about some of those NIL numbers. So, I mean, that's going to be really interesting when that article comes out and people have to um, stay on the lookout for that as well as a lot of the other um, practice videos that we have coming out on uh, sundevilsource.com. But let's go ahead and get right into some football, uh, the nuts and bolts of it, actually what's going out on the field. So uh, the quarterback battle, Chris, I want to get your thoughts here. It seems like a lot of Drew Pine and Trenton Borgay talk for the starting position. Jaden Rashada, the freshman, has come in, and this fall he's um, you know, really worked to improve the game. He's, he's you know, been outspoken about uh, he's just listening a lot to, to the others in the room as well as Coach Dillingham. But what are your thoughts on the quarterback battle so far and what you've seen through eight practices? Right. So Jaden Rashada, talent almost off the charts. Um, the only guy who's maybe had an arm as good as him in the last since like Andrew Walter, like the last 20 years until now was Dylan Sterling Cole, who, you know, he started briefly and ended up transferring, didn't, didn't really make it. Um, mostly because of, you know, football IQ and, and, and situational awareness, accuracy, but, um, Jaden Rashad, very, very special talent, but also not ready. And we've seen that pretty consistently. For instance, today through an interception down the field on second down into double coverage. Um, and there have been moments where it just you see that the game is a little bit too fast. And but I like that he is uh, staying in the pocket, trying to read coverages, trying to learn the scheme, and all of that. So put that to the side now. And you definitely have a very close competition between Drew Pine and Trenton Bourget. Um, People who listen to this, our, our free podcast, they may want to know, we've been tracking, you personally, Ethan, have been tracking the quarterback performance every single day, the number, the, the rep distribution, first, second team, uh, seven on seven and 11 on 11, how many throws, how many completions, what, what, you know, what drives have resulted in from a success standpoint, turnovers, touchdowns. We have all that on some level source, very, very detailed stuff that people should Definitely, if you're not subscribed, you should get on there and, and check it out. Um, my view of this is that it is the closest quarterback competition at ASU in, in preseason camp since 2006 when Sam Keller and Rudy Carpenter uh, did battle, and that ended up being um, uh, quite a doozy <laughs> in terms of what ended up happening. And we're gonna have, that's a whole other podcast. But the bottom <laughs> line is – the bottom line is that this is extremely close. I think in the spring, uh, Trenton Bourget was ahead 
he had a better understanding of scheme. That was, I think, the difference. But Drew Pine has caught up on scheme, and it's, now it seems very close. Pine has a little bit better arm talent and a little better ability to get the ball down the field. I think that Bourget gets the ball out of his hand a little bit quicker, probably competes a little bit higher percentage, but usually I would say on, on average, a little bit shorter uh, uh, travel time with the ball, right? So we're going to go up to Tanzona. We're going to keep tracking it every day. I would say they're probably a week or maybe two weeks at the very most away from uh, deciding who their quarterback is going to be. Uh, I really think that it could go either way still. Most media out there, I'm very confident, believe that Trenton Bourquet is should be the starting quarterback and is like clearly ahead. And I'm just telling you that I, I, I am very confident that it's not the case. I am very confident that this is neck and neck. And Drew Pine had his best days on Thursday, Friday, I would say. And the last couple of days have been pretty even. So we have to just kind of wait and see how this thing unfolds. Now, the good news for ASU and its fans, uh, either one of them can be, can be reasonably successful to maybe even very successful, somewhere in that range. I don't think ASU is going to have bad quarterback play this year. It should not happen. And even if the starter ends up, for whatever reason, not playing well, right, well, then you have a backup who – looks like they were pretty good in preseason camp. So you just never know. And you have to just kind of continue to watch it. But this is not like a lot of people talked about 2012, Taylor Kelly beat Mike Bercovici and Michael Eubank uh, after maybe being third at the end of spring ball. But I didn't think it was that close by the conclusion, by like the second or third week of camp. I thought Kelly looked like he was just the best operator. Bercovici threw too many interceptions and I looked a little bit like he wasn't quite uh, settled in enough as he was later on in his career. So uh, we're going to keep tracking it. Daily QB tracker in the Devil Sanctuary on SunDevilSource.com. Yes, definitely go check that out. Lots of good information there, like you were saying. Uh, when do you think we can start to project when there might be an official starter named, not only at the quarterback position, but also at some of these other positions on the field as well, Chris? Great question. So we asked this same question to Brian Ward, ASU's defensive coordinator. Uh, he said that typically around practice 13 to 15 is when you get to the uh, settle on who your two deep is, and then you start repping and preparing for game opponents. Now they're through eight practices, right? So tomorrow, Wednesday, that's nine. Uh, that's not open to media. We're not going to see it. Then they go to Tonazona in the afternoon. Then they'll practice uh, 10 on Thursday, 11 on Friday, 12 on Saturday. Then they come back, and then it's 13, 14, 15 before school starts, right? Um, so I think right around the start of classes, which you would know better than me, but I think that's on like a week from Thursday. Yeah, it's on the 16th, from, I think. Uh, okay, so a week from Thursday. Okay, whatever that is. I think it might be the 17th, 16th, 17th. Around then is um, – when I think we're probably going to start to know. Now, they might not announce who the starting quarterback will be that day. I think it's possible they might not announce it until sometime uh, the following week, and that might be partly because, you know, you can maybe keep your opponent from knowing a little bit longer or something like that. Certainly a week out from ASU's opener, 
which is uh, the 31st. We will definitely know that's the 24th of August. So sometime between the 17th and the 24th, probably. What do you think about this ASU offense this season? I mean, a lot of firepower. Seems like it. Who's standing out for you and, and why? Yeah, so um, the strength of the team, certainly the offense, is their pass catchers. Uh, Elijah Badger comes back, 70 catches, fit, tied for fifth in the conference last year. He told me that his goal was to have a top five all-time season at ASU in receiving yards. That would be almost 1,200 receiving yards. Like, almost nobody did that in the Pac-12 last year. It might have been one guy or something, two guys. So – um, those are his expectations, but what's to me, I'm looking at it and I'm saying that might be hard because they have a lot of weapons that they can throw the ball to Xavier Guillory in practices. He doesn't drop anything. He has speed. He's a route runner. He's almost to me like a co number one. And he's on the opposite side of Badger. in most of these formations that their Badger plays X and Guillory is a Z. Well, I think that Guillory could be a 60-70 catch guy in the Pac-12 this year. And then, of course, you have Jalen Conyers, who had 30 catches in the final five games last year, a pace that, if he does the same thing this year, would break ASU's tight end uh, receptions in a year record, which I think is 57 by Chris Coyle. Uh, which, by the way, this is a very tight end-friendly offense because Chris Coyle did that in the Mike Norvell offense early on, which... Kenny Dillingham is the protege of Mike Norvell. It's 75-80% the same offense, okay? So they're going to throw the ball a lot to Jalen Conyers. So if you get the ball pumping to these three guys, and then you still have Geo Sanders had 40 catches last year. Mel Quan Stovall came in from Colorado State. He's a good option in the slot. That's that You have five guys. Then you have Jake Smith. He's had a pretty good camp transferring in from USC. you got Andre Johnson who is, you know, probably had his best offseason yet. He has a vertical capability. If you have a lot of guys that you can throw the ball to, that is absolutely the strength that makes it easier on the quarterback. I think at running back, they're not going to be probably as good as they have, or at least not as athletically dynamic as they have in recent years. But Cam Scadabo, he's a force. He's a physical presence. He's going he's gonna to hurt some people out there. Like there's going to be guys bouncing off of him, and he's going to carry dudes for two, three, four extra yards pretty consistently that's a that's a very important thing um and then they have other guys that service roles like uh javen jacobs he's a pass catcher uh you can move around the formation tevin white has a little bit better overall home run component with the ball in his hands to carlos brooks is a guy who can kind of do everything they have kyson brown he's a freshman who's come in and he's looked pretty good so i think they're going to be fine there the biggest question is their offensive line and I would say especially how they uh, handle pass rush at offensive tackle. Between Isaiah Glass, Emmett Boley, maybe Bram Walden, who's come on and has looked pretty good recently, transfer from Oregon, former number one recruit in, in, in the state. Um, those guys have been given a, a, a handful and from ASU's pass rushers who are very good. And so it's, it's kind of maybe a little bit hard to say, okay, are these pass rushers that good? Or are ASU's offensive tackles not quite where they need to be going in terms of their overall team capability? And when you want to get into a lot of spread you out, five wide or single back set, no tight end or tight end flex, 
you know, that creates some challenges. You have to get the ball out really quickly for the quarterbacks. But I think the interior offensive linemen have been pretty good. Lee Fautanu as a center. I've liked him. Joey Ramos has looked good at guard. Uh, they, they added two transfers this summer. Uh, Sione, Sione Finau from Purdue, solid. Cade Briggs, solid. So interior line, good. Uh, quarterback should be fine. Not, you know, it's quarterback league. It's, it's great right now in the Pac-12. So they're not going to be top half of the Pac-12, but they should still be pretty serviceable in the middle. Receivers and tight ends are great among the top. Can they keep the quarterback upright? And can they get enough run blocking? That's what I'm. That's what we're focused on moving forward. Then looking over at the defensive side of the ball, they had a lot of transfers. There's some guy in bigger roles this year uh, as well. Aggressive style of play. So what have you seen from them, and what do you expect uh, on that side of the ball? You know, defensive line wise, I know a guy I look at is Clayton Smith. He's fast. He strikes quick. Um, he he's got all the physical attributes. I think so. Is there anybody out there who's maybe standing out? And what do you get? Um, as a gauge on the whole group? Yeah, so first of all, I think it's very important to say that this is a defense that's much better constructed to make the most of the personnel that they have on their team, which was not at all the case last year. They, 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 they made poor usage of their players, which made their defense look a lot worse than they probably actually could have if they had the right coaching and the right scheme. So uh, Brian Ward, the coordinator, very aggressive. Um, I asked him, I said, you were probably like a seven or seven and a half on the aggressive scale with Todd Graham being a 10. Brian Ward says, I think I'm probably like an eight. Uh, they have uh, very, very high end goals. Um, 30, 30 sacks as a team and 20 uh, takeaways. And they, they, they didn't do that last year, um, but they still had one of the better defenses in the conference, top three in a lot of categories at Washington State. Brian Ward's defense did do that at Syracuse several years ago. And I, I'll, I got to say, the, if the strength of the offense is their pass catchers, the strength of the defense is probably uh, their secondary in terms of their ability to cover. I think Roe Torrance, uh, Mason Williams, Ed Woods, those guys have looked very good. They also had Demetrius Ford from Austin P. They have very good corners. And then they're, I think they're pretty good at safety as well between Chris Edmonds and Shamari Simmons. And we'll have to see if Xavier Offord is, is cleared to play or not as a second-time transfer. There hasn't been a verdict on that yet. But then the other thing, the, the coverage and pass rush, they go together, right? Those things are, those things are, are, are uh, they're, they're tethered. So the pass rush of B.J. Green and Clayton Smith – is also one of the best attributes of this team. And what that does is it creates the, uh, when you have good uh, coverage, is you feel like uh, you can trust those guys in man situations and you can dial up whatever you want and come after quarterbacks. And so I think that they're gonna be, they're gonna lean into their aggression. They have these guys that can, that can, that can get after it. Uh, Clayton Smith from Oklahoma, really good. Prince Dorb is a good backup from Texas. Who's a pass rusher? Uh, they've moved uh, Anthony Cooper inside from end to three tech. He's a good interior pass rusher. They got Deshaun Mallory. He's got a good combination of power and get off uh, as a defensive tackle from Michigan State coming in. So, the, are they stout enough on the interior? I think that's the biggest question. This is a defense that wants to stop the run on the way to the quarterback. 
and there's a possibility that holes get open and you can maybe get gashed when that's the case. Linebacker, they added Trey Brown from Washington State. He's a good starter. They had expected Juju Mitchell, Jordan Mitchell to come in from Tennessee and probably start. He got kicked off the team within a week because they were just not going to deal with anything that was a distraction from the culture that they want to have at ASU. Isaiah Johnson, the super heralded cornerback prospect who was a top recruit in 2021, I believe, that they signed. He also was kicked off the team a few days earlier for the same things, which, by the way, I have a lot of respect for Kenny Dillingham. I think you cannot sacrifice on culture at the very beginning of what you're trying to do. And they have not. So, but that means that Will Schaefer has to step up at linebacker and maybe even other guys have to step up at linebacker. But I just think that between their, their pass rush capability and their secondary, that they're going to surprise some people and they're probably going to be at least in a average overall defense in the Pac-12, if not better than that. Yeah, if you want to exceed expectations uh, on the field, you have to exceed expectations off the field. So I think that Kenny Dillingham culture that you were just referencing a moment ago, that's going to be something important to keep our eyes on um, and seeing how much the athletes on the field actually buy into that. It seems so far that there has been some pretty decent buy-in. Chris, you said that you think ASU is in a spot to you know, have a chance to exceed expectations in the conference this year. So what leads you to that thought? And uh, maybe you can break that down. Absolutely. So all the years of my time covering ASU, and even well before then, there were limitations on how many new scholarship players could be added in a calendar year. That, at one point, it was 28. Another point, it was 25. There's some workarounds to that. You, can like back count, you were able to back count kids if you didn't use your full allotment the prior year. That's why maybe ASU sometimes added, ended up with like 30 or something like that. But the NCAA suspended that rule for the first time this year. Kenny Dillingham inherited a roster that needed a lot of work because Herm Edwards and his staff, they were under the NCAA investigation. They knew that they were probably going to lose their jobs. And they kind of stopped recruiting. They didn't sign up. They didn't add any four-star commitments for like a 14, 15 month period until they lost their jobs. And they had a, the smallest ever freshman class that we've seen last year. And so, and they had a lot of guys that they were just filler on the roster that they blasted one year and they jettisoned those guys. So Dillingham came in and they, they added 50 new scholarship players, which is 20 more than any other time ever. It's like a massive difference. The previous record of Division I transfers at ASU was 14, and they added 30 Division I transfers. And half of them are going to either start or be top backups for their team. And so the point is that they had, a, they had the ability to overhaul their roster much more quickly than would have ever been the case if not for that rule suspension. And so if not for that, I don't even know if Kane Dillingham would have taken the ASU job. Like it might've been like too big of a rebuild process. It might've been a three-year thing. And you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that for my first job. It's a little bit risky. And you don't know what kind of sanctions you may or may not get from the NCAA and all, all these kinds of things, right? So, but the fact that you could add that many new players, that was great. And what that does is it allows you to make your roster so much better than would have otherwise been the case right away. And so when I look at it, 
ASU in the betting markets are they're projected to be like a 4.5 win team, right? Um, I think I saw they're getting like minus 110 or something odds at 4.5 over under uh, on, the, on the over. And the way I look at it is they have eight home games this year. The last few times ASU played eight games at Sun Devil Stadium, 2007, Dennis Erickson, they won the first season as coach. Their, their team wasn't that good, and they won 10 games because they, they had a great schedule, and they started out strong, and they got momentum, and they were feeling good about it. And then Todd Graham's 2013 team, I guess it was, won 10 games. They played in the Pac-12 championship against Stanford. That was one of the eight home games. So when you have new energy, new discipline, a new intensity that didn't exist, a totally rebuilt roster, uh, eight home games, right, the expectation to me shouldn't be a four or five win team. I think this team should be at least a six win team, maybe a seven or eight win team. If quarterback play offensive line end up being maybe a little bit better than, than is expected. And maybe they stop the run a little bit better than expected. So, um, you know, are they going to be world beaters? Are they going to, you know, compete with, Stanford or Wash, I mean, pardon me, USC or, or Washington, or maybe Oregon or whatever to win the conference. I don't, you know, probably not, but they should be very competitive. And there's a lot of signs that point to the potential for them to be better than people generally believe. And by the way, one caveat, Kenny Dillingham, he loves to throw out factoids and stats or whatever he said at practice regularly. 74% of the time, the team that wins a turnover battle wins the game. So ASU is going to have to end up on the right side of the turnover battle, avoid injuries and other types of things. But do all that, you give yourself a chance to have a, a, a season that gets you some traction and momentum in terms of what you're trying to do, build at that foundation level. All right. So we recorded this on Tuesday evening. Like uh, Chris said earlier, we're going to be at Camp T later this week to watch practices as well as the scrimmage. So coming soon, we'll have a premium podcast with more in-depth analysis and more. So stay tuned for that. Chris, any final thoughts from you before we go ahead and sign off here? Yeah, uh, just appreciate everyone bearing with us uh, through a little bit of a hiatus that we decided to take. And also we had a uh, promotion where a bunch of new people signed up for the site and subscribed. So if you're listening for the first time, really appreciate it. Also, like Big 12 fans, if you're like paying attention now, like, thank you. Like, we got like just tons of people like that started following and engaging with us on social media from that. So that was, that was great to see. And um, we currently have more uh, subscribers at sundevilsource.com than any time since I've been doing this. And the most of any time for any ASU fan site, recruiting site like ours on 24-7 or the other network sites like that. So very proud of that. Um, the message boards have been super active and uh, appreciate everybody contributing. And, and we just want to keep it, keep it rolling. And there's going to be a lot more uh, from us in the weeks to come. And when, once we get into the season, we have every week one free podcast and then one premium podcast that are reviews of each game and then previews of the following game. And I, I know people look forward to that. And we also are very much excited. Yeah. Thank you to everyone once again, one last time. And 
Chris, thank you to you for joining me as that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. We'll see you next time.